0: Well, good morning, church. Good morning. It's great to be with you. As Pastor said, yes, I'm one of the pastors and missionaries on the team at Love Life here in South Florida. And just delighted. Pastor, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for your boldness and for your courage in, in not just talking the talk, but walking the walk and standing for life and shepherding the people of God in that way. I'm delighted to be among you today, delighted to open God's word with you. Now, I know the, the Lord has a lot to say to us today, so we're going we're gonna to run headfirst into the word in just a moment. But I want to open, if I would, with just a word of prayer to just uh, ask the Lord to bless this time. Father, thank you for moments like this this. Thank you, Father, that we can be challenged and changed by your word. I pray, Lord, that you would fill us, that you would unstop our ears, that you would unveil our eyes, that we would hear and we would see all of what you have for us this morning. Lord, to help us set aside some of the distractions and help us focus in on your word and your truth, that it would change us and we'd leave here a little different than when we got here. We ask you to do this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Today's important, As we're going to spend time together in God's word, I just want us to, from the onset, to recognize that this is no small matter in the eyes of God. That as we look at his word, God wants to do something in us today. He wants to confront you and comfort you by his word and through his spirit. Today we get to do that and be a part of that together. As we jump in, I want to share with you that the, the simple phrase that we're going to talk about today that's going to dominate our time together, this is a, it's about compassion and it's been around a long time. It's an old phrase, it's an old story. Little children hear about it, adults misunderstand its simplicity, and many of us, people try to categorize this. This command by Jesus may actually solve most of the world's problems. In fact, it's actually two commands. Pastor and author Francis Chan said this about this command. He said, do you know that nothing you do in this life will ever matter unless it is about loving God and loving the people he has made. In fact, this four-word statement, this one right here, will fulfill everything that God has called you and I to do. Love God and love neighbor. And today's passage is found in each of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We're going to spend time this morning together in the Gospel of Luke. So if you've got your Bibles with you, I hope you do, uh, please turn with me to Luke chapter 10, where we're going to spend the rest of our time together in verses 25 through 37. While you're making your way there, let me just set some context, because understanding context is significant in understanding the message of the Scriptures. And, And this passage before us this morning is a parable. It's a parable that Jesus told. And it's important for us to understand that parables are not just simply illustrations. Parables are are word pictures. They're comparisons that contain, that have a deeper spiritual truth that Jesus wants us to know and wants to teach us. The the nature of them is really to wrestle with them because they come alongside the truth. And Jesus masterfully uses these stories, these comparisons, to make the spiritual truth much clearer and much more understandable. Today's passage is a biting story by Jesus. This parable, um, there's a lot in there, but we're going to hone in on, we're going to laser in on Jesus' command, and we're going to ask and answer the question, who is my neighbor, and how do I love them? Because you see, as, as, as Jesus' um, crowds grew, as he spoke, and as he taught, and as he traveled from city to city, and the crowds grew, the opposition grew as well. And these parables... What they did, they served to separate the serious from the curious. Because the serious would hear these truths. They would hear these parables and understand it. They would get it. The curious would hear the very same truth, but they wouldn't get it because they didn't want to, to begin with. And that makes sense to us because you and I today, we know that people sometimes adopt the name of Jesus or recognize Jesus for what Jesus can do for them. Like in that day and in that era, people, man, they follow Jesus for the free food sometimes. They followed Jesus for the great stories or for the big crowds or for whatever was happening. That's what was going on in that day, and we see that even today. But with this understanding, let us look at our passage this morning. So I hope you're in Luke chapter 10. That's where I am. And what, as is my custom, and I know that you honor the word of God here, so if you're able to, I would ask, please stand with me. We're going to read through this passage. Just track along with me as I read through the verses in Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. Are we there? Yes? Wonderful. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, Well, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among the robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so likewise, a Levite, when he came to that place, saw him and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think, provided to be a neighbor, proved to be a neighbor, to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So this parable, this short story, begins with Jesus being asked the question, There's actually two questions. The first one is in verse 25 that we saw a moment ago. Question number two is in verse 29. We're going to get there in a few moments. But let us look at what led up to the story and then the story itself. So in verses 25 through 29 that we just read, this man who asked the question, he's identified as a lawyer. Now, that's important. It's important for us to know because the story is kind of going to hang on that a little bit. This, This lawyer was an expert in the Mosaic law. Like he understood the law, he recognized the law, he could repeat the law, he could teach the law. He was an expert in what that demanded. And now his question, I mean it's posed as a question, it's kind of veiled as a question, right? But it's actually a challenge. Most of your translations are going to say to test Jesus. So you can see that this is really a question, yes, but it's also deeply a challenge. And it's a good question, it's about salvation, eternal life. But what I want us to see this morning is the intention behind the question recognize with me that there's an agenda here. There's an intention behind this man's question. And now this isn't new for Jesus. I mean, if you've looked at the New Testament, if you've read through it at all, you've seen that religious leaders often try to use questions to trip Jesus up, to confuse him, to help him stumble, to make him stumble over their questions or over his own words. We see that time and time again. And what Jesus does is he simply baffles and confounds them, right? A similar group of leaders, you, you might remember this story. They thought they were smart, and one day they asked Jesus, is it lawful to pay taxes to the Romans? Remember that question in the scriptures. Man, they thought, man, taxes were a fiery and explosive issue in first century Israel. So this was a tricky question because if Jesus says no, don't pay him, then he's guilty of insurrection to the Romans. And if he says yes, go ahead and pay them, then he loses favor with the people who were already tax burdened. So the, the, the religious leaders like, we got him. If he says no, he's in trouble. If he says yes, he's in trouble, we got him. But what does Jesus do in that account? Notice with me, he throws the question right back at them, doesn't he? What does he say? He says to them, so, so whose image is on that coin? And they said Caesar's, and Jesus said, good. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, then give to God what is God's. And, and the text says in Matthew 22, when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him for, and went away. So if Jesus, if this was the thing, he would have dropped the mic right there and walked off, right? Because here, man, what he said just baffled them. They had nothing left to say after Jesus' response. And you would think that they would get tired of being embarrassed like that in front of their other friends. But no, no, no. Luke here reports that they tried to do it again. And what does Jesus do? He, again, redirects their questions back to them. Do you see it there? Jesus skillfully turns the questioners into the ones that have to try and go and find answers now. I mean, this is his masterful here. I mean, Jesus himself puts himself in the position of evaluating the lawyer's answers instead of the other way around. So see what Jesus is doing. The question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, it's a good question. How do I get to heaven? How do I enter the kingdom of God? And Jesus points them to the Old Testament. He points this lawyer. He points this expert in the law back to the law. And, and, and he says, well, what does your law say? And look with me then at verse 27. This is the response. And he answered, the lawyer answered, answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the lawyer, as Jesus anticipated, he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Love God with everything you've got. And then he quotes from Leviticus 19. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love your neighbor. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus adds some perspective for us because he says that on these two commandments hang all the law and all the prophets in Matthew 22. So Jesus looks at the lawyer and says, fantastic, you're right, that's true, you got it. Now go and do it. That's the direction Jesus is leading him. But apparently, this wasn't clear enough for this intelligent lawyer. It wasn't, wasn't clear enough for him. Because in verse 29, look at the lawyer's response. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And that's the second question that Jesus gets here. So here we see this person's insincere kind of deceptive intention. Do you hear the insidious nature behind that? So Jesus, who exactly is my neighbor? There's an agenda there. There's an intention behind that that Jesus pulls out. He was trying to evade his own responsibility for others. I mean, if you have the ESV, there's a note there that I think is important for us. The ESV says that this is an improper question. He should have asked, how can I be a loving neighbor? Not who's my neighbor, but how can I love them? The lawyer was looking for the least amount of obedience necessary to be acceptable. I mean, we know what this is like. And sometimes we just want to do the least, just enough to get by. Just let me do the bottom of the barrel, just enough to get by. This is what the lawyer was looking for. He tried to make himself look good, look better, look righteous even, by being able to avoid certain responsibilities, certain people. And this isn't unfamiliar to us either, is it? I mean, we know what this is like, right? So, you know, look, what I said was um, mostly true. Like, what are we saying when we say that? Or what about, you know what, if they don't find out, it doesn't, it's not a big deal. No one knows. It's not hurting anyone. What are we saying when we say that? We're trying to find a way around the full responsibility of something. Looking for a loophole. And this is the story from the very beginning. This was, this was um, Adam's story, looking for a loophole. God approaches him. God always goes to the head. And God approaches Adam in the cool of the garden and says, Adam, where are you? As if God didn't know. Of course God knows. And then they have this conversation. And Adam says, well, it was the woman you gave me. And then the woman says, but no, 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 it wasn't me. It was the snake. And then the snake says, yeah, it was me. So two of them trying to avoid responsibility here. Someone has said, now, by the way, you can go a few pages further, find that same story with Abel. God goes to Cain. He says, where is your brother Abel? And Abel responds, am I my brother's keeper? And God says to him, what have you done? The innocent blood of your brother Abel screams to me from the ground. We'll get to what that means a little bit later. But imagine what that sounds like when innocent people die or are murdered. Someone has said, is there a neighbor I must love? And if there is, is there a non-neighbor that I don't have to love? I mean, do I have to love everybody? Jesus, where can I draw the line of who I can love and who I don't have to? So, so that way I can know I don't have to pay attention to these people because I don't really have to love them. I only have to love these over here. Someone has said that's a good question. You see, we live in a world We live in a culture, we live in a society where lack of compassion, that's the epidemic. This lack of compassion. So Jesus, who exactly is my neighbor? See, this is not an obscure issue. It's not a peripheral idea. No, no, this is is central. This is a command. This is what it looks like to be a Christian. This is Christianity 101, to love life, to love our neighbor, to love others. Galatians 5.14, for the whole law, can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. John chapter 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give you, that you love your neighbor, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also love one another. So what does it really mean to love your neighbor? That's the question that Jesus is presented with and the one that looms before you and I today. So what did Jesus do? He told a story. You guys like stories? Yeah, well, good. Jesus does too. He tells a story in response to this question. But before we talk about the story, let me just just bring this out. because, Because every time, what we see in the Gospels, what we see in the New Testament, when Jesus answers a question with a question, or when he answers a question with a story, man, heads up, pay attention because someone's about to get it. Like, Jesus is going to make a point here. So look with me at verse 30 in our passage. Jesus replied... Well, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among the robbers who stripped him and beat him, departing, leaving him half dead. Let's stop there for a moment. This Jerusalem to Jericho road, that was a 17, 18 mile trip through the Badlands. I mean, this, this, this was, terrain was tough. The road was treacherous. There were thieves and robbers that occupied that area. They would hide in caves so they could assault weary travelers as they went down that road. So everybody knew that that was a difficult place well, this traveler, Jesus doesn't even specify who he is. He doesn't tell what the guy's job is, what his hometown is. He doesn't say anything about him because that's not important. The important thing is this person, this man fell into a precarious situation. It was a perilous one, no doubt. Life and death. They stripped him, they beat him, and they left him for half dead. The man in the ditch on the side of the road. He has no help. He sees no hope. He has no options. And in verse 31 through 33, now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And in verse 32, likewise, a Levite, when he came to that place, saw him and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, in verse 33, as he journeyed, came to where he was. When he saw him, he had compassion. Let's hold it right there. These three characters that Jesus inserts into the story, I want us to feel the weight of this. This would have sent shockwaves through that audience. Those three particular people, the Levite, the priest, and the Samaritan. Let's take them one at a time so we can see where Jesus is going to be leading these people. He includes the best and the brightest of the Jewish culture. Like like the Levites and the priests, they were the elite of the elite. Like they, they got the best seats in the synagogue. They wore the finest robes. They got the best attention. These were the best the Jewish culture had to offer. And Jesus includes them in the story as the bad guys. You see that, right? That, that's like us today using Charles Spurgeon or using Billy Graham as the villain in your story, right? You guys like Billy Graham, Charles Spurgeon? Okay, that works, that analogy. All right, great. But that's what he's doing. And then Jesus has the audacity. He has the the gumption to make the Samaritan. Samaritans were a hated people. Samaritans were called names. They were rejected religiously, politically, economically. They were called half-breeds. Jesus uses that guy as the good guy in the story. Can you imagine? Well, look at what Jesus is doing. This is brilliant. Character one, the priest. This is the one who served in the temple the one who's most likely to help. Surely he would stop and, and show love, right? Surely he would, he would help. But Jesus said, no. He passed by on the other side. The priest saw him and ignored the desperate man. He chose not to love the one in need. He chose not to help the one in the ditch. Oh, well, wait, wait, there's hope. There's another guy, the Levite. This is now a member of the tribe of Levi. This is the second most likely to help. These guys assisted the priests with all of their priestly duties. He knows how to help. Surely he would stop and provide some assistance to a dying man, right? No. Jesus says he passed by on the other side. The Levites saw him and chose not to help, chose not to love. And now Jesus says nothing of their motives. He says nothing about about their intentions, their motives here. He's focusing his attention on their unloving actions, their lack of compassion. So character three, and that's the next verse. Look at me. We read it. He went out, um, verse 33, the Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Jesus, now you've got their attention. Now now you've got everybody's attention. The Jews' hatred for the Samaritans, as we mentioned earlier, was widespread and well-known. Well, Jesus, now you've got their attention. This is how Jesus is going to define loving our neighbor. Showing compassion to the one in need. The great preacher and pastor Haddon Robinson said, Your neighbor is anyone whose need you see and whose need you're able to meet. Just for emphasis, your neighbor is anyone whose need you see and whose need you're able to meet. So, so what, what did he do? Well, Jesus said that this Samaritan did three things. Notice with me the text. He came to where he was, he saw him, and then he had compassion. You know, sometimes I read the scriptures and I just wish Jesus would be a bit more specific. I, th- I wish he'd be a bit clearer. Really? He, he went to the man... He saw the need, he had compassion, and then he did something about it. This is, this, is, this is what Jesus shows us. And this compassion that he had, the original Greek and the original language, that word compassion is this deep, guttural pity. It is this profound, deep yearning, compelling you to do something. That's what this word compassion means here in the text. The neighbor was someone in need. And I want you to see this. Neighbor here had more to do with proximity than it had to do with a particular person. You see that, right? It had more to do with where this guy was than who this guy was. Because we don't know anything about him. All we know is, they came upon this man dying in the ditch on the side of the road. Our neighbor then is thus anyone within our proximity with whom we can share God's love. With whom we are called to show compassion. To love those whom God places in our path. And I know this is going to stretch some of us. And I know this, I know. I see the wheels turning already. Who is my neighbor? Well, it's anyone within your proximity, that you can show the love of God to and have an opportunity to minister to. That's who our neighbor is. So Jesus' answer to the religious leader that day, his answer to the Pharisee was, in a sense, his answer to religion. Loving your neighbor meant compassion that leads to action. And the, the, the good Samaritan here, the least likely of the three, like the worst one in the story. He didn't ignore the need. He didn't, he didn't let somebody else get to it. I mean, he didn't say, well, look, in all reality, come on, what this guy's fault, everybody knows about that road. How dumb do you have to be to do... He didn't say any of those things, did he? No, he didn't. Remember who Jesus is speaking to. He's speaking to the Pharisees and the religious leaders. They didn't do either of these commands. They didn't, they didn't love God. They loved their rules about God. They didn't didn't love people. They burdened the people. They neglected the people. You see, what, what they were doing, the first question that the priest and the Levite asked was, if I stop and help this man, what will happen to me? The Samaritan reverses the question. And he says, if I don't stop to help this man, what will happen to him? Martin Luther King Jr. said that. Everything hangs on these two things. Love God with everything you've got and love your neighbor. Love me and love them. The Samaritan sees the need and has compassion and that he does something about it. That's verse 34 and 35. Look with me in our passage. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you When I come back, the Samaritan begins to minister to the man left in the ditch. The Samaritan's compassion is not only contrasted with the unloving actions of the others, but his compassion compelled him to move, to do something, to help in some way with whatever he had available. I mean, that's incredible. His compassion led him to action to help the one suffering. This is genuine love for neighbor. This is what Jesus wants us to see. This genuine love, what, it, what he did? He bound up his wounds. He set him on his own animal. Verse 35, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I return. I mean, I will pay for him. I will pay what he owes. I hope you hear echoes of the gospel there. This is, this is where we see Jesus taking them. Because there's a ditch in your city. There's a ditch in your city that exists. And in fact, it's right down the road, probably two and a half miles. And there are people in the ditch. Now you've heard from pastor and you know, some of you have been out there with us. I serve with an organization called Love Life who stands on the side of the road with the helpless that see no hope, that need a picture of grace, that need to see Jesus. Tom and Jonathan that are here with us today, two of our team members, they are out on the road there every day. Every hour those clinics are open, they stand And offer the hope of Christ and the help of the gospel to men and women and families who need hope, who need help. They're hurting, they're broken, they're they're desperate, they're in need. And with an outstretched arm and an open hand, Love Life offers the hope of the gospel and the help of the local church. We at Love Life, we profoundly and proudly call this ditch ministry. See, because this is not fun i mean it's not it's not comfortable it's not we're not not excited about having to go do that because we know this truth that no one wants to be out there the women and men that go there don't want to be there and we don't want to be there but the scripture tells us to rescue those that are being led to the slaughter to hold back those that are stumbling to their death this is a command it wasn't a suggestion by the scriptures so this is, this is why we approach it in this way. We live and work in that uncomfortable space in between the abortion center and the church and the pregnancy resource center. I mean, we love to see that you've got the baby bottles and you support hope. Man, that is fantastic. Please continue to do that very thing. We partner with them in the sense that we send men and women to hope. We drive them there. We Uber them there. We follow them there. We get them to where the resources are. Because here... All the men and women are running to for their hope. They're running to the abortion center for their, for their hope, for their help. And Love Life doesn't want that. We want them to run to the church. We want them to run to you. We want them to come here to be loved on, to be encouraged, to be discipled, to be built up. We want them to come to the local church. This is why we say people in the church, come help the people in the womb. We know where the hurting are every day. We know where innocent lives are lost every day. Does that make you feel uncomfortable? We know where children are scheduled to die every day. It should make you uncomfortable. It makes us all uncomfortable. This is why we come to the greatest organism on the face of the planet. The one that has the hope of the gospel and the only help there is found in Jesus to come and help, to come and be a voice for those that don't have one, to come and be... A picture of Jesus to a watching world who needs to see Jesus. Instead of running to the abortion center, we want them to run to the church. And I've got some pictures that just to show you, and many of you have been out there, so you've seen this, some of you have not, but these are some of the scenes of what it looks like to be out there being a peaceful, prayerful presence of Christ. Now I can't say this enough. My friends who haven't been, and even for those that are out there, this is not a protest, it is not a march. It is not a picket of any kind. It is a prayer walk where we, where we come to the church, a clarion call to the church to do three things. Pray, walk, and sing. And that's it. That's it. And you might, well, is that it? Yes. And we've seen 50, you are one of 57 churches in South Florida that have now said, we want to be a voice for those that don't have one. 57 churches. We only started two and a half years ago. We're still toddlers What that meant, what that looks like is over 6,700 people have been on the prayer walk. It is an amazing picture of what it looks like to love God and to love people. And here we can celebrate this, 93 babies. 93 image bearers of God. God is saved through the work of Love Life. 93 scheduled abortions are now alive because of churches like yours that help in the resources and in the presence of Christ to be able to keep missionaries on the street, to be able to keep the church available to send moms to. Guess what? There's a baby shower here for a mom you don't know. In two weeks, Pastor? Uh, July 1st. July 1st. There's a baby shower happening in your church For a mom you don't know who doesn't know you and she's going to walk in here and she's going to bring daddy and she's going to bring auntie and uncle. She's going to bring grandma and grandpa and they're going to come to the church and guess what you get to do? You get to love on them. You get to show them this is what it looks like to be Jesus. I can tell you story after story. We've had women come to us and as awkward as this sounds to me and you right now, they've said to me, "I I didn't know people did this. Imagine what that's like. This is transformative and it's not just for the life of the baby. Somebody reminded me in the last service to make mention of this. We commit for every mom that chooses life, Love Life commits to walk with that mother and father for two years. Two years! No one is doing that. So it's not just the life of the baby and you're done. No, no, no. We want to love on those moms and dads. We want to get them the resources they need. We want to set them up with mentors from the church and then we want to plug them into the local church so the church grows them, and they strengthen, and they become part of the body. I mean, it's an incredible thing what you all are a part of. Some of those babies, that's your fruit. That's fruit of your work. That's fruit of your support. That's fruit of your prayers. You pray for us, man. We're indebted to you for that. Now, oh, what a beautiful thing. This is not political. You have heard no political rhetoric from me because it's not that. We believe politics and politicians will not change the culture. The church of Jesus Christ is going to change the culture. The gospel is going to change the culture. That's what we believe and this is not even extraordinary work. It's not extraordinary work. This is, for us, it's, it's loving your neighbor. See, the genuineness of the Samaritan's love was evident. Yes, it was inconvenient for him. I mean, it would have been easier to walk away. It would have been easier to do what the priest did, and the Levi just ignore it and walk away, scroll through your iPhone as you're walking by, pretend you don't see it. It would have been easier to do that. It would have been, been, it was tedious for him. He couldn't even ride his own animal. He had to put the other guy on it. It was costly for him. He paid for the supplies. He paid for the lodging. Listen, following Jesus will cost you something. It will cost you everything. But it was loving his neighbor. It was an act of compassion. We're going to close here. Our Christian life hangs on loving God and loving our neighbor. And what does that look like? What does to love your neighbor look like? Well, it looks like treating your neighbor with compassion. It looks like praying for your neighbor, serving your neighbor, going to where your neighbor is and ministering to them in the midst of their hurt. It's discipleship. It's small groups. It's, it's learning. It's missions work. It's outreach. It's all of that. It's sharing the gospel. You see, today's parable is not just about the work of the gospel. It's about the person of the gospel. See this. I mean, you know, Samaritan told the innkeeper, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay. Who does that sound like? it's it's Jesus. Yes, man, I'm glad you're sitting down. Listen to this. The good Samaritan is Jesus in the story. Do you see it? He sees the afflicted and the affliction. He goes and he binds wounds. He saves, he pays for, and he returns for. this, This is what that story is bringing to the surface. Don't let this pass you by. My friends, this is the reality of what it means to be a Christian. Jesus took my place on the cross. He paid for my sin, the penalty that I owe, that I deserve. He paid for it. Jesus comes and finds you and I battered, beaten, broken, lying in a ditch. And he offers us life. And he offers us help. And he offers us hope in exchange for our sin, our rebellion. What a beautiful picture this parable of a good Samaritan is looking at us Jesus on the cross displays the very same compassion. I will pay what you owe. This is perhaps, I mean, perhaps you, you know this and this is you've heard this story and, and you know this account and you know these, that's wonderful. Man, let it, let it inform the way you live your life. But maybe today, maybe you got invited here this morning, maybe grandma dragged you in, I don't know how you're here, but you might be thinking, look, I'm doing fine without Jesus. I'm doing great, I'm doing okay, I'm doing fine, look, I'm doing great. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, would respond by saying, you may think you can live fine without Christ, but you cannot die without him. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all displeased. We've all done that. You have a debt that you owe and you cannot pay. And Jesus suffers and dies as the God of the universe to stand there naked, nailed to a cross to say, I will pay what you owe. The good Samaritan says, I'll pay what he owes Jesus says come I will pay it." this Saturday we have an opportunity together to be a picture of this savior to be a picture of this one to those men and women two miles down the road who need to see Jesus there's nothing for you to do there's nothing for you to bring there's nothing for you to pay for but your presence peaceful prayerful presence is what changes this world because you have the only message of hope. So we would encourage you. We would call you. We would say, come. Come this Saturday. Your pastor will be there with us. You've, so many of you have been out there before. This Saturday from 9 to 11 o'clock. Before 11, we're done. Two hours of your morning to come and show the world this is what it looks like to love God and to love people. We don't just talk the talk. We walk the walk. Let us pray. Father, so thankful for today, Lord is thankful for our time together. Thank you, Father, for your word challenging us and changing us. Lord, may you do your work in our hearts as only you can do. Lord, thank you for the message and the example of Christ in everything and especially in these words here that we would walk away with today knowing that if we love you and love our neighbor, we will have done everything that you require us to do. Father, thank you for loving us the way you do. It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen.